Welcome to Screw the Hierarchy, episode 33. This is Deb Falzoy, and today I'm talking with three black workers who felt they were on the receiving end of racist or other discriminatory behavior at work. I'm here with Marty, Thomas, and Malika, and they reveal the details of their versions of the mistreatment and what's happened and hasn't happened in the aftermath. Are you ready to hear what they have to say? More after this. If you're a target of workplace abuse and want to break free of the grips of abusive power, you've found your place. I'm your host, Deb Falzoy, and the podcast begins now. Um, first, I want to introduce the three of you and, and thank you for being here. We have Marty, we have Thomas Flint, and we have Malika Whitley. And I want to start with each of your stories um, Marty, we'll start with you. If you can talk about, you know, the industry you were in, what, how long you were at this company for, what you did for them, um, what the work culture was like, if we can start there. Okay. Um, hi, I was employed with FedEx Express uh, out in Needham, Massachusetts. Uh, I began there in November 2014. I was hired, <clears throat> hired as a driver, um, an express driver. Um, it was a male-dominated uh, industry. Um, there were, I think, two African-American drivers at the time and one black manager. Um, the rest were uh, white employees. Uh, I drove for about two years, and then I came in to uh, work as a CSR over the counter. Uh, during that time as a driver, I noticed that uh, I was being treated differently than my white male counterparts uh, in response to the loads that we would have to deliver. Um, also, in regards to complaints that were made um, from our customers, I was treated differently. Um, I was treated differently as far as having help to assist me with you know, a large load, whereas my white younger counterparts, they was always given assistance. Um, I also, it was being held against me that the manager was black. She had been there a while. She was also having problems uh, with the company. Um, I knew her, I knew of her problems, and I also felt they was tying us into one. Uh, that the fact that I was, it became very uncomfortable to work there. Uh, it was beginning to um, affect my health and my everyday, you know, state of living. Uh, it was not a comfortable environment, uh, to say the least. Thank you, Marty. How, um, can you talk about, like, if you reported what was happening or you know, any, um, any way that the company did or didn't deal with what you were going through? I would report incidents. I will report, report disparities such as I was not being, was not given help when I had a large load, as opposed to my white counterparts who was younger, okay, that were being given assistance to do large loads. Um, I reported when I was a comment was made about me being a woman driver uh, for one of my younger male counterparts. Uh, I reported that, nothing happened. Um, I reported when an older white gentleman uh, threatened me one night. He was all up in my face, like this close, um, threatening me about how I was performing. Now he was just a, a regular subordinate. He was not management, but he felt that I was uh, taking too much time out talking to someone else. And he was in my face, he was threatening. Um, someone had to come between us and he had had numerous complaints about this and nothing was ever done. Okay, when I reported that uh, and someone else was a witness, they didn't do anything. Uh, they didn't try to pull the tapes. Uh, to verify or anything else like that. I had another black female counterpart. Um, she was assaulted by one of the managers and she took the manager to court. I was one of her witnesses. 
Now FedEx records everything that goes on. They have a camera in all, you know, each dock on each aisle. And that particular day, they said that the cameras was not working. Okay, and they could not back up her story how she was assaulted to the point that she actually just, she left. She was just forced out because she couldn't take it, you know, so. I reported mine, my incidents, I reported, I went all the way up to Tennessee. That is the home office and nothing was never done. Wow. So sorry you went through all, all of that. Um, was there any retaliation or can you talk about what happened after you reported? Every, I was being scrutinized for everything that I did. Okay, everything that I did, it was not, good enough or it wasn't right, even though I had many accolades from customers that would write in and call in about the uh, exceptional customer service that I was providing for them. But behind the scenes, it was always something. And one of the, man one of the managers, he was uh, of Chinese descent. He told me to be careful and watch my back because they was looking for anything and everything just used against me or to maybe terminate my position. And soon after that, they demoted him and put him somewhere else. So what's your um, status now? Are you, you know, with the- I, uh, I have a lawsuit um, that I obtained a law firm. We took them to court through MCAD. Uh, there was no probable cause found. So now we're waiting to see, we are asking for a settlement from the from FedEx directly. In order to sue them, it would take a large amount of money to sue them and the case could go on, could go over for years. So and that's what they're banking on. But also if you look and dig deep into the complaints with FedEx, uh, there are many complaints of uh, discriminatory complaints that have been filed against FedEx, uh, especially with FedEx Express. FedEx is broken up into three industries. There is ground, express, and there is the office part. A lot of them, a lot of the complaints are with the drivers through express. A lot of them with African-American uh, females, okay, uh, about being discriminated uh, against uh, their white counterparts, calling them names, treating them differently. So there, there, there are a lot. And then in your particular case, you said you're still waiting for a determination from MCAD or? They found a no probable cause. No probable cause, okay. So my attorney wanted to, we, he was supposed to reach out to FedEx and see to come to and demand, make a demand, a monetary demand. But when the pandemic came along, you know, everything has sort of been like dormant right now. Uh, the last time I spoke with him, FedEx had not responded. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Uh, I, I know, I'm sorry, I know it went through EEOC, but I have not heard the um, fine is from EEOC as, as of yet. How long has it been? Uh, since 2018. It's been two years. Wow. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing that, Marty. I'm going to move to um, Thomas now. If you could, um, same thing, share your story. We can start out with, you know, what industry you were in, how, how long you were there for, what the culture was like when you started, um, and then, you know, we'll, we'll take it from there. Okay, uh, thank you, and thanks again, uh, Deb, for having me. Um, my story is a little bit more extensive. Um, it involved the court system, the legal system. Um, it's sort of like what we talk about with systemic racism. Um, I dealt with it at a young age, and I literally grew up in that era. So uh, really long and short of it was um, in 1989, um, I became a court officer. I was the youngest uh, African-American court officer in Suffolk County at the time. And we're talking about an era of, of Tom Fennerin and Sal DeMacy era, that era where um, nepotism, favoritism, uh, corruption, all that was rampant. As a young black man from Roxbury, being thrust into that, you can imagine what I dealt with. Um, spent 20 years in there, accommodation letters, you name it. But I'm gonna get right to what happened to me. Um, in 2009, um, in a court in South Boston, because all this stuff that I'm saying is, um, is on record, 
um, I was accused. Well, let me let me let me back up a little bit. In 2006, I was dealing with um, discrimination um, in a court that I went to MCAD and I filed a discrimination complaint against it um, on this gentleman who's this, um, a white gentleman director of security. Um, and this is all um, factual. Um, and then in 2007, um, I went back to MCAD for a retaliation complaint because um, I was telling them that the gentleman who ultimately took my job years later, if they didn't do anything, then that was gonna happen. As we all know with retaliation, you have to have a time frame between um, the um, when the incident happened and at least about three to four months or so leading up to after you file that complaint, if there is some retaliation. And that's exactly what I did. Thinking that MCAD was an organization that was gonna remedy my problem, all it did was made it worse because it's literally turning the big brother on the little brother because the Suffolk Superior Court is right downtown and MCAD, Massachusetts Commission Against Discrimination, is right behind it. So it is all still under the emblem of Commonwealth of Massachusetts. But again, as a young man, I didn't know those things. Um, so I went in, filed that retaliation, telling them that if this director of security, White, did not, if they did not stop him, then he was going to take my job. So zooming up to um, September 2009, so that's 20 years in the system of, of a young black man who dedicated his whole life. It was my career. It was, it was, it was more than just a job. So this young white kid, we were both unionized. He was 22 at the time, no, 28 at the time, I was 42. He had three years on, I had 20. So it wasn't like he was a superior of mine. Um, in 2009, he said that I yelled at him in a back room for 45 minutes that no one heard. In fact, I had a, uh, a, a, bi a, a biracial judge that was on the bench who came to my defense and said he heard absolutely nothing. <laughs> that allegation, a black director, uh, assistant director of security came in and investigated it, talked to the people and came to the conclusion that it was a personality conflict. This is September of 2009. The same white gentleman that I already warned MCAD about, and when we talk about bullying and retaliation, they did not like the fact that I had filed something on them. So this white gentleman in November of, um, in October of 2009 came in and said, I, I don't wanna listen to that, that decision, I'm gonna investigate it myself. So with the same information that the black gentleman had, he took that allegation and you gotta remember, the three things that you, that you do that will cause you to lose your job is sexual assault, selling drugs or putting your hands on somebody. I was just accused of yelling at somebody, which I still contend now I never did. He took that allegation and he terminated. He, 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 he didn't take me through the process because if they're saying, and this is what uh, Malika and Marty were talking about is, what they do is when a person of color files a complaint, they change their narrative, just like what we see with George Floyd and those things. They try to make you out to be this bad person. So people will believe the narrative and won't give you the justice that you deserve. At that point, I immediately went back to MCAD. Now, that's three complaints. 2006, a retaliation in 2007, and the ultimate in 2009. And after 20 years of my life being invested into the court system, they took my job. I, I mean... When you talk about the pain and, and what people go through, and you gotta remember, I'm a father, I have kids. Like, how can I live with myself and my kids going through something like this? So after this happened, we went to MCAD. Now I had a I had a complaint with MCAD where I turned a no probable cause into a probable cause. We had a conciliation hearing, and in a conciliation hearing, they just throw crumbs at you. They threw crumbs at me that wasn't even a month's pay. Obviously, I didn't take it. So there goes the, the, the journey of the eight-day public hearing where we were, we were doing that. 
during the disculpatory and all this other stuff that comes with a hearing, we deposed the gentleman, the white um, director of security. And in that, we found out that he had ongoing um, discrimination complaints in MCAD, that he was not qualified to be a director of security. You need a master's degree, not a bachelor's. He had a bachelor's. And we proved that he had personal animus towards me. And literally, he took the white kid's name over mine. Before I pass this over to you, if you have any questions, he had, he also, the same man who told me that I was not fit to be a court officer, allowed a white officer to get go on paid administrative leave for sexually assaulting and raping three prisoners, three female prisoners in the courthouse downtown. His name was on that where he allowed this white gentleman to still stay on his job um, until he got out to the newspaper. Um, I was the only person that was disciplined in this. The white gentleman who, who accused me, he still has a career in there. The white gentleman who took my job, he's been demoted, but he still has a job. I am the only person who has suffered the severest penalty because of an allegation of a yelling that no one can prove. Wow. Um, I'm just kind of curious uh, about like some of the like the work, the work culture leading up to that first incident, maybe some that happened to you or to other people, some of like the racial, racist sure, sure. happening, if you can kind of talk more about that piece. Oh, of sure, it. sure, sure. I can go a little deeper because my case is at a point where um, I don't face any ramifications from this or whatever. But one of the things that had this going was there was a white judge who was connected in the, in the state house who I worked with in the West Roxbury area, who um, she had told me to go and talk to a white gentleman to see what he wanted in the court. And her words to me were, I don't want you to spook him. That, that to me was something that bothered me because why would this white judge tell a black officer to go to a white gentleman and ask him, like, what does she mean by spook? Um, when she saw that I'm a neighborhood court officer, so um, black, white, orange, the, the have-nots, they would come to me, and I had a good status in that court, as a, in the court system, as a gentleman who was fair to everyone. Um, when she found out that stuff like that, she had said to someone that, I'm going to have to clip his wings. I have witnessed officers double dipping on the job. They would go out in their flip-flops and have baseball games moonlighting and that was illegal that was not permissible in the system um i've witnessed um when you speak up all of a sudden you're ostracized and you're the person who has a problem so i've witnessed years and years of racial disparagement i've witnessed um black officers being afraid to step up because of discipline coming from a white chief or what have you in that system, if you were to go to another courthouse, I mean, and Malika and Marty would know that, is all they have to do is pick up a phone and say, hey, Tommy Flint is coming your way. He's a hothead or whatever. Next thing you know, by the time you enter that court building, they've already judged you. You already have two strikes against you. So from the time that they knew that I was going at them, my life in that system leading up to my termination, my wrongful termination, was absolutely hell. Wow. Um, and so when you, um, when it got to MCAD, you, they, they dismissed it. Can you actually just go over that? Sure. sure. So what happened was, um, and this is when governor Patrick was, uh, Deval Patrick was governor. What happened was the Bay state banner in little neighborhood places, such as people like yourself, they took a, some people took a chance to reveal my story. When MCAD knew that certain people were calling saying, hey, why is this man still waiting for justice? You, your folks have to understand, I've been waiting for justice for 11 years. I would have celebrated my 31st year in June. So I went to, I was desperate, and Malika and Marty can say, I was desperate to go to anybody who would listen. So that just, so what MCAD did was they slowed up um, investigating my case because they didn't like the pressure on them. 
So what they were saying was, hey, we don't have, we're understaffed, we're undermanned, so it's going to take a while. But why would someone have to wait 11 years for justice? So what happened was I had a lawyer who had since died upon their last decision that happened last year. So my case had to end because I did not have the money. My lawyer passed away, and this is what they do. They know that we of color don't have the resources, so they extend it. My thing is, my thing is, why would I still be in this fight if I was this bad person? It wasn't the case. I had accommodations. I had journals. I had, I had, I mean, I had a 28-man witness list, and they only let me call three. So I knew that I was up against the Goliath. That is just unfathomable. And to be a taxpayer, somebody in the city who we tell our young black men, don't resort to violence. Use your head to try to get justice. And I just did not get that. So before I pass it back on to you, my last action was last year, about March of last year, I got a decision finally because what happened was they, they after coming to this public hearing, a white woman by the name of Kaplan, and this is public record, she just literally just disregarded all my evidence and said that what happened to me should have happened to me. I put in an appeal. I put in, and when my lawyer died during this appeal process, I had to put a 15 page appeal together and I'm not a lawyer. So obviously I didn't probably know the right things. And I had to go into a full commission of four people. Now I'm thinking, okay, four people, maybe I have a chance, but what I didn't know and I know now is systemic racism goes up the ladder. It does not matter about you think you have a case or you think you have evidence. The system is built against us and we need to, we need to take action and recognize that. Thank you for that, Thomas. So just to clarify, so between the time you submitted the MCAD information and the time you got any, like, decision on it it was 11 years did you say 11 years. yes yes the last one just came march and i had to make a decision because at that point according to mcad i had ran out of all my options with them so my choice was to gather some money and get a lawyer and go to the superior court or to let it die and i'm going to tell you that was one of the most heartbreaking things to decision to make is my mother who has been a pillar of the community, had to see her son make a decision that now is affecting me, my family, my kids, my grandkids. These folks don't understand. It's a ripple effect that affects every single person. What do I say to my grandkids when they say, hey, hey, grandpa, what happened? What did you do? So I'm committed to this just like Malika and Marty, and I'm gonna continue to get my word out. Um, MCAD ought to be ashamed of itself. They should not call themselves an agency who's there to give us justice because they're not. They're just as crooked as the people we're fighting. And they just flat out dismissed your whole. So basically, I had a, a, a from March of last year, I had a period of time, I want to say about a month, to file my papers in Superior Court. I didn't have the money. I was depressed. I was sad. I was defeated. So I was forced to make that decision. And I'm still going over that decision right now. So they gave you, you they gave you like a 30-day window to... Yes. yes. And, they, and, they, and what happened was from the time I appealed it, they made me wait an additional three years to get that decision. So I'm waiting three years. I'm calling up there because I wanted to make sure that they did not forget about me. So every couple of months, I would go up there and let them see my face. It was to a point where the secretary felt bad. She knew about me, not because she knew me on the street, because she kept seeing my face. And even she was like, I don't understand why this case is still going on. So after the three years, they finally said and sent it to the mail and said, hey, um, you, um, we don't rule against, we rule against you and good luck. So. Wow. I'm sorry. So sorry for what you went through also, Thomas. What a drag you through that all of that is unbelievable um i want to move to malika now if you could you know share your story too sure sure so um 
I worked at um, Beth Israel Deaconess Healthcare for 10 years. And um, so back in, mine go back, you know, a few years, I started um, complaining about the training. But before I complained, there was a complaint prior to mine. This um, Korean woman, she brought up how all the white people were getting trained um, and she was not. So she won her case. Um, she won her case, but I wasn't getting trained um, either. So, um, you know, I kept I kept going to my manager. She said, we will, we will. Now, mind you, the Bethes will pay for my degree. They pay for the training. They pay for the supplies. So it's something that they agree in a contract that I'll get trained. And when I say trained, I was in a micro department. So you get trained on different benches, urine bench, stool bench, you know, so. So I, I, I did some complaining. Um, once she lost her, um, won her complaint, she actually left and went to another part of the, um, the lab. So I put in a complaint and we went back and forth, took it to the highest person. She agreed. She agreed. She said, you know, this is wrong. It's been eight years. We promised her this training. Stop doing it. Right. So I didn't realize when one of the um, head managers said to me later that, um, you put in you put in this thing, complaint. I'm gonna get you. So I think that's like schoolyard talk. So I, I didn't know what I'm gonna get you mean. I said, what does that mean? And she just walked away. Didn't think nothing of it. So in um, October 17th, I had a very good friend. She was a um, white girl. We hung out after work. We laughed together. Talked on the phone. We were at work, and um, she made a comment, a racial comment about someone from another country. And she didn't realize, she didn't understand why it bothered me when she wasn't talking about black people. So I reported her to the manager and they didn't do anything about it, you know, and, um, you know, so it went on an investigation. They asked everyone what happened, but I was the only one there. So I just kind of swept that under the rug and I just explained to them, you know, it's, it's you know, it's not fair. So time went on. So on October and December 14th, 2017, I was sitting with one of my friends, a white man. He was a very good friend of mine. So we hung out. Um, we went out to eat together. So he, he told me the story. And I'm going to tell you quickly the story. And this is what the part where I was sexually harassed. He told me about an orthodontist. And an orthodontist date underage women. And once you hit the age of 23, you were then too old for him. So the orthodontist did this illegal surgery um, on one of his young girlfriends because he felt that, and I'm going to say, he felt that her labia hung too long. And he went into the details of the, the oral sex between them. And this is all at work, the oral sex between them, in that he body shamed her so much to get her labia, part of her labia removed. And I guess she agreed as a young woman. And he's, and she agreed to talk to a doctor. And then he said, no, I can do it here. So she was tearful. She was scared. He put her up. He put her into his chair. He's an orthodontist. He talked about where he injected the lidocaine. He talked about every inch of this young lady's body. This is the orthodontist explained to him. Now, the orthodontist is in his 60s. He explained every inch of the woman's body. So he, my coworker was friends with the orthodontist and in his, um, he was friends with the orthodontist daughter. So he was at the orthodontist house when he explained the story with the new, the new girl, the new girlfriend. So he explained every detail, every inch of the girl's body. He said the woman's name, all of this. So when he was finished doing the surgery, this is what the orthodontist said. Um, I later left her after a couple of days because young girls are disposable what moves young girls and why i get young girls is that um i have power and i have money that's what makes me date young girls so he told me this so in my mind as a as a as a um soldier and have dealt with you know sexual trauma in my mind i'm thinking i'm counting at that time I'm counting down and I don't know why I was counting down because the key thing he said to me, once they turn 21, they're too old. So I started to count down and then I tried, I walked away from him and I, and I told him, no, stop telling me the story because he started detailing the moles of the woman, 
the, 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 the birthmark that he has. So he started to follow me closely. And as he's following me, he's making a cutting noise of the surgical tool cutting her labia. So he follows me. I yell, no. And I'm loud and I'm, I'm walking away from him. So I came to a point where I stopped and I turned around and he's just close to my face. He makes the cutting noise. He puts his hands on my shoulder and on my nose and on my cheek. So at this moment, I went numb. So as I'm yelling no um, to him, it's loud in the lab. So only thing my manager was concerned about was not my story. Why was I so loud yelling no? So I'm looking at her as a woman. So I go to her office and I tell her about this story. And the story is so detailed that I don't even want to get into how he took pieces of the tissue. I'm not even going to get into this because we were micro people. We deal with tissue. And I told my manager and she looked at me and said, oh, I didn't know why you were yelling. No, I just thought you had a big mouth. Um, and she looked at me and said, it's a fireball offense. I'm going to let human resources know. Okay, days passed. I went back to her. She said, he said he didn't tell you the story. I went back to him. He said, I did tell you the story. No one, no one asked. And no one asked me about the story. And um, so he said, I did tell you the story and I apologize. I was wrong. I said, okay. So that's when the re retaliation, it was already starting, but this is when it was like heavy. They were throwing stuff at me when they wanted to talk, when I, they, they would, Malika do this and throw stuff at me and talk about they're not going to train me. So I launched another complaint to human resources and I sat in front of, um, the human resources director. And one thing I can say, and maybe it's just me, I, I went to her about discrimination, um, um, racism. So it's all on email. I have all these on email because one thing I did was email them. So when I got there and I told my story about it, she said, no one didn't tell me about the story. And I said, they didn't. She goes, no, she looked shocked to me if she never knew the story. So she took my complaint, you know, and I gave her my complaint from years ago. So she, she took a look at it and um, she came back and said, um, Malika, um, like two, three weeks later, Malika, um, I didn't find anything. So if I was you, you're a great employee, just go back to work. And I'm saying to myself, like, as, as mandated reporter, we're not even going to report this story. You know, this, this orthodontist, um, we're not going to report it. No, just forget it. You know, whatever. So I was horrified. So how my manager got me in her, um, her office is, um, she told me she wanted to talk to me about my ongoing training. I was complaining about, and, you know, so when I got to the office, both of my managers were sitting there and, um, I came in and, and to my surprise, one of my, she, I, to my surprise, I didn't know the other manager was going to be in there. Um, she told me some story where she wasn't, she left the floor or something and she just wanted to talk to me. I got in there. They closed the door. They started to yell. I can feel their breath. I can feel their spit on my face. And one of the things they said to me is that we're going to destroy you. You almost destroy two white men with your big mouth. That orthodontist could have lost his job, and your coworker could have lost his job. And as a black woman, who do you think you are? You should be privileged to be working here. You should be privileged to have a house. But one thing we are going to do to you, um, your son goes to a private school. We're going to make sure you just we destroy you. He's not going to go to this private school. You have a beautiful car. We're going to make sure that is gone. So they said all of this. All of a sudden, I just remember passing out because they were all yelling in my face, um, you know, about me. And they kept talking about me trying to destroy two white men. Korea, not that, Malika, this is an awful story, um, you know. And then they took shots at the military. They told me that I was blamed for the Iraq war. I was blamed. My brothers and sisters went down there to purposely murder innocent people. Later I found out 
me and my attorney that one of my manager's husbands, husband, not husband, husband is from Iraq or Iran. So I passed out. I, I, there was a nursing doctor over me. And as I was passing out, I can feel them trying to take this write-up that they gave me. But I must have put it in my pocket. So um, I was taken um, to the emergency room. And um, I remember the doctor in the emergency room said to me, it's going to be three to four hours before I see you. All of a sudden, I don't remember. I just remember running out the emergency room, running across the street, and all these cars were coming. I was seeing red light, green light. I jumped in my car and, and hid under my bed. Why did I do that? I don't know. So the next day, and I gave the MCAS my phone bill, the next day, the manager called me and continued, like, like she continued with all these verbal assaults. I passed that into MCAS. She called me on the phone. So two months, so that happened February 8th. I got enough courage to go to MCAS. Now, when they were yelling at me, I didn't know so much about the MCAS. They, they, they said to me, if you take it to the MCAS, we have people that work behind in the MCAS. We're going to destroy you. We're going to hold your case up for three years. And after three years, you're going to get a non-probable cause. And that's what happened. They said, exactly, you can bring any lawyer that you want. We backdoor systems like that. They only go for organizations. And that's what they did. So the day I got my decision was in May. And my lawyer was so horrified because they tried the case without me. But one of the things she said to me is, Malika, um, you're, I can see, I can call them up and see if they want to, um, you know, um, settle with you. Or, um, or you can go to court. And she's talking all these figures. But in my mind, I'm like, first of all, I used all my money all my savings to live off. So what about these, these figures? I, I can't do it. But after 10 minutes, I wasn't mad. So one thing I can say to you, they can offer me a million dollars. I won't take a dime from the BI. I won't settle. It's my story. If they want to pay into my nonprofit or pay into anything that has to do with women, with sexual trauma for women or men, they can on behalf of me. But they will not, um, I would not allow them to pay me. I don't want to take a dime. So my, my, so my lawyer didn't call me, of course, because I have no money. So legally you need to have money to fight them. So that's my story. Wow. I'm, I'm so sorry, Malika. That's, it's such abuse of power, like every single level of what you went through. Um, I mean, I tear up when I tell my story because he was able to do it a second time. And I gave the name to the woman at MCAT. They didn't even call her. And um, at some point, they told MCAT that she fed me the story. How was that when it happened to me first? I don't know details of the other woman's story because any type of trauma you go to, and then they try to define, they gave me a definition of what sexual harassment means. It has one definition. There's no degrees to sexual harassment. There's no A, B, C. It's something that's unwanted, something that's sexual. I didn't want it. I said no. So no is no. So um, that's, that's my story. <laughs> Thank you all for, for sharing those, the, the trauma of, of what you went through. I want to talk now about the MCAD piece of it. And we can have a, a discussion now about that, about how they, they failed all three of you. Um, I mean, between just, just outright dismissal or like this back room abuse of power. Right. 
just delaying cases. Um, what are what are your thoughts on? I mean, a, a what should have happened? I think it's pretty clear in probably all of the cases, but just your opinion on how this like how it should have gone down and just what needs to happen. I mean, we'd be just, just culturally, um, you know, we saw the black lives matter protests and, um, you know, these demands of justice. And I want to like, and we know, um, so we were talking before about how just discrimination law isn't effective in disrupting, um, the social hierarchies at work for the exact, you know, the exact reasons that all three of you described and more. Um, and that makes, you know, my personal experience in trying to push for workplace abuse or workplace bullying legislation um, to, it would not only give people um, in cases where there isn't discrimination, but really the people who are getting bullied and abused at work are women, um, black people, brown people, you know, people who are being discriminated against but just can't prove it or aren't, or are dealing with the corruption um, and abuse of power in the legal system that um, prevents you from proving it. So, um, yeah, if we can get into kind of our, our take on MCAD and what the problems with what what's been happening um, and what should be happening instead. Right. Whoever wants to... So, right. so how do you prove it? You know, how do you prove it? So that means that if it's an if it's a non probable cause, that means that the organization proved it. I don't know how that I don't know how that works because. If you look at the facts, and most people bring facts because if you didn't bring facts, they wouldn't take your case. Remember, you go with an intake person. They intake what you said, then they take it in the back and show an investigator or a lawyer. And you bring your evidence. I had evidence, email evidence. They passed into the MCAM pieces of paper they wrote on. You know, so. So we have another system that when you when you, when I left the Beth Israel, what should have happened is that they shouldn't have victimized me. I became a victim twice and in waiting for the decision three times. And you know, I don't understand why, you know, they're not accountable for this. Why didn't the MCAS say, here's this girl who's talking about um something sexual harassment? Whether we believe her or not, we need to call this the management, the, the, the president, who every time there's a lawsuit against the, um, um, the Beth Israel, the president knows about it. So I'm your employee for 10 years. Why didn't he say to me, Malika, come in, let me talk to you? Because even if he didn't believe me, what he should have done as a president is to say, oh, I'm going to send something out to the entire Beth Israel telling about our policy and procedure on sexual harassment, sexual trauma. But with that being said, the MCAT says, I'm going to dehumanize her. And it doesn't matter if she has evidence. I'm just going to hold off for three and a half years to tell her she wasn't a victim. She wasn't discriminated against. So who decides who's telling the truth, you know? That's the thing, so what is the MCAS doing? Throwing the dice? And, and the die only has um, the organization on it. So that's the issue that I that I have. How will you come, I and mean, I understand they write you decision, but one of the things that I saw about the decision, they changed my narrative. They said that I said it was his young wife who he did this surgery on. Okay, let's say if it was. What's the difference? You know, so that's the issue that I have. You become a victim over and over again, just like at work. So I'm not understanding how the system is, is, is working. It's not working. So that's the issue that I have.
I became a victim and they, they should have took my evidence. They should have brought me in and they should have talked to both of us and came up with a solution. Not a solution, not a monetary solution, a solution. Because at the point, you don't care about the money anymore. I don't care about the money, but they should have came in with a solution. So it's a, so, you know, that's just what I think about the, the end um, and, and to answer your question, Deb, um, if, um, because if the court says, which they never afford me, if they said that I was this hothead person or whatever, um, they, they should have afforded me some type of counseling, something right. like that. They never did at all. So I say that to say, if I have overwhelming evidence, so MCAD is supposed to be the neutral fairground, right? So if the court says, hey, this guy is this way, and I've brought diaries and um, um, accommodation letters, overwhelming witnesses, at best, MCAD should have said, I'm right down the middle. I don't believe each of you guys 100%, 50-50. So you go in a room and you make this happen, okay? That's what they should have done at best. To have, I mean, it's not like, and like Malika said, it's not like I walked in there with no evidence, right? right? It, to, to have that process going so long, you have to have you a leg to stand on. But when they realize that you're going up against something, because if I was right, Deb, that would change how the court system should be ran. Now, if that, if this Black Lives Matter movement would have happened back then, then this stuff would have been over, right? So MCAD should have did the fair thing, which is right down the middle. Why do something to one person? If two people are involved and you don't know what happened, then you should either do something to both or none. But to have MCAD look at the, the, the system in the world and say, we are fair, and, and just literally threw my whole life away, mm-hmm. 20 years of service to say, we have no evidence other than just hearsay, but we're going to believe that you are who they say that you are, so forget it. I'm talking about my pension, my retirement, everything that I worked for is gone. So for me, justice for me is, is to make right with what happened, right? I don't want a penny more than what I deserve because now I'm working two jobs. I had to, you know, I had to go on public assistance, which nothing's wrong with that. But to pay into a system for 20 years and to just get thrown out on my head. Every time I watch the news now and I see a court officer on TV, it hits me again. Because I say to myself, I should have been there. So MCAD could have done the right thing and go right down the middle. But they did. Again, it's turning the state on the state so yeah absolutely how about how about you marty what are your thoughts oh i'm just gonna take you off mute here there we go you know, I just wish I could just retire right now and go live on a nice little island in the South and not have to be bothered with any of this anymore. Um, I'm just at my wit's end because this is just straight across the board. Uh, I'm dealing with another issue with another matter, but I had an attorney tell me on June 16th that I was wrong. And even though I was wrong, the courts don't, they, He said, you was wrong. Now, is that fair? No, it's not fair. He said, it's just the system that we have. Is it a fair system? No, it's not. It's not a fair system. Does the courts think, does the court want to make things right? No, they don't. They just want to move things along. This has just been a problem just just for years. And what are we going to do about it? You know, we have systemic racism, not only with our police department, not only in our state agencies, it's with the judicial system. Okay, it's straight across the board. Uh, they don't, Thomas and Malika don't, I know Thomas don't know this, Malika might realize this. I used to work for the state. 
I was there for years until I worked with Tom Wiley. I, you know, I was in the attorney general's office. I was laid off when uh, Martha Coakley came in. But the things that I saw there, you know, the state has been in trouble a long time. The city's in trouble. You know, the city only hires, the city does not hire, you know, qualified individuals. What they do is they hire their family members. No one does their job. So what do we do? You know, I was born and raised in Alabama. I'm a product of George Wallace. So everything that they're showing right now with John Lewis, you know, with the, the bridge, Montgomery, I was raised in it. You know, I'm just tired. I'm tired. I don't, you know, Deb, I don't know. I, I don't know. Because when is the agencies and, and people are going to be held accountable? Really? You know, with FedEx, I went to work for FedEx because I knew the manager there. She was a black manager. She had been there almost 30 years. She spoke up and, and made a comment and complained and reported something that happened there. She never shared to share with me what it was. From the minute on, FedEx harassed her and harassed her till they forced her out. So, and, you know, I was left there. And I think because she hired me and they really found out the depth of our relationship. Again, this is why, again, they hounded me and they hounded me. You know, my friend now that, Miss um, Leary, another African-American courier that was there, they forced her out, you know, when, when the manager there assaulted her. And, you know, and all of a sudden the cameras don't work. You know, they was not positioned. So I, I don't know. For Mr. Flynn, I, I want to see him get his retirement, his pension. I would like to see him reinstated even if he don't want to stay, just for him to say, well, okay, I quit. But for him to work for there for long and lose everything just for that reason, absolutely not. With Malika's case, how someone boldly tell you that, you know, you're going to lose and this is what's going to happen to you. And you're going to who says that openly like that? You know, I'm very boisterous now because I'm 60. And I just basically wanted to work long enough to have my daughter get out of college, you know? But I'm tired of the, of the white systemic system. I don't really want to go back into the workforce. I don't want to deal with the racism, you know? I don't want to deal with the prejudice. I don't want to deal with the unfairness, the unjustness, because the minute that you speak up and say something, retaliation happens. Is retaliation legal? No, it is not. It's written in our employment laws. Your employer not allowed to retaliate. But that happens on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. It happens on a daily basis. With the South Boston court. Well, I don't know how old you are, but see, I remember a time in South Boston, Blacks were not allowed to go into South Boston. So there are still a lot of prejudice there. Did they want to see Mr. Flynn in that courthouse? Absolutely not. They didn't want to see a Black man over there. Okay, and in, in, in that court to be, forget being a court officer, they didn't even want to see him being a janitor over there because his face was black. So I thank you. You know, I applaud you. Malika is working very hard um, for this cause. Um, I don't want Malika to be a lone ranger. I've explained to Malika she has a fight ahead of her. She's gonna have to probably go to Washington. You know, she might be in the same boat as um, John Lewis uh, and the young lady, I can't think of her name, but this was the young lady that years ago, she went to go into college down in Alabama and George Wallace had his, you know, guard, stand guard, so she could not enter that college. I just can't remember her name right now, but yeah, so. I mean, that that's, I don't know. I just want to see justice. You know, the police department is not the only place that we have a problem. It's straight across the board. And when that attorney told me that on June 16th, it was almost, it was a relief. It was all, it was justification for something I already knew.
Um, Deb, um, um, before before we uh, we go on, I just want to echo what Marty said, and I want people and your listeners to know that we all can't be wrong, right? Before this journey started, myself, Malika, and Marty were three individuals. Um, maybe Malika and Marty knew each other before this, but we all came together for the common cause. I'm a 52-year-old um, grandfather. Malika is is her in her age. I'm a twenty five. Forty five, and yeah, a gentleman should never ask a woman. And um, Marty and Marty is sixty, right? We we have lives, we have families. We wouldn't be. Do, do people think that we want to do this stuff? Do we that we're volunteering, volunteering to take on this fight to go through the pain and the depression and the loss and the isolation? We don't. We but unfortunately, God has has graced this on us where we have to do this fight. Before I met Malika, I was going through my healing process. But running into her, I said to myself, I would sacrifice my wounds to help her. And then I met the lovely Marty, who God bless her. Um, so I just lastly want to leave with you guys is we got to do something. We're holding on to our, with our fingertips. We're trying, but in the process, there's so much collateral damage. We all can't be lying. Um, I know there's other officers in the system because I've contacted some people who are scared, understandably, what they just said about retaliation. But this stuff that I'm talking about in the system and MCAD is rampant, and there are people who want to speak out. So I thank you, Deb. God bless you so much for being that advocate and that voice for the voice. Uh, yeah, I also, Miss um, Leary, who was also a former employee of FedEx, she is willing to speak with you. She's pregnant right now. So I just want to make sure she, she lives a healthy and uh, um, healthy baby. Uh, but she definitely was interested and she definitely wanted to uh, speak out. So. Great. Um, any other closing thoughts? Yeah, just my closing thought is one of the things that um, I would love to do, like I said, um, they couldn't pay me a million dollars because if you, if you pay me, I'm going to have to sign something that I can never tell my story. But I would love to go sit across from my um, president of the Beth Israel and, and, and just say and just um, just talk to him. You know, what happened to me, your employee, 10 years? Because he took a knee. The employees at Beth Israel, along with him, took a knee and said they stand against racism, discrimination. So that's one of the things that I would love to do is change the policy. You know, not change the policy. The policy is there. And why didn't he call me and talk to me about this? It's almost like you were sexually harassed. So what? And why is it that people give different definitions to racism, discrimination, sexual harassment? So those are my, my closing words. I just want to know, like, why do we, when something happens to someone, we put it on a degree on this you know what i mean well that's not really i was told that that was a sexual harassment i was told by the bi he didn't sexually harass me you know so it's my closing words well thank you all, all three of you for sharing your story for being a voice for people especially since this is such a thing that such an area where people feel voiceless um such a rigged system it's such a pay-to-play system. It's such a, a, a system that's broken and, and it doesn't work. It doesn't make people feel whole. It doesn't bring people justice. Um, and, you know, thank you for being the voice to hopefully start to change that. Thank you for listening to Screw the Hierarchy. If you feel like you need more help, I have a free guide to recovery steps at dignitytogether.org slash targets and a sign up for daily boosts through your inbox at the same place. 
All of the content in this podcast was created and edited by yours truly, Deb Falzoy, and the music you heard is from Kevin McLeod. All right, have a wonderful rest of your week, and I will see you on the next episode. Bye.